anyway, again, if I haven't got a chance to meet you, my name's Aaron, uh, and uh, it's great to be gathering. And if this is one of your first times with us as a church, we're thankful as well that you're joining us. Um, as a church, uh, what we love to do is we love to walk through books of the Bible together as a church, kind of verse by verse, line by line. That's kind of our normal diet uh, as, as a church, kind of our, our normal rhythm of how we walk through and study God's word. And for the last couple of months, we've been walking through the second book of the Bible, the book of Exodus. So if you want to uh, open uh, your Bible with me, uh, that's where we will be today. Um, we will be in uh, Exodus chapter 13 uh, in a few minutes. Uh, let's see if I can flip there we go. Um, so we'll be in Exodus chapter 13. And if, if you are newer around, oh, hold on, sorry. Oh, thank you, buddy. You did that for me. Thanks. Um, so to catch you up, uh, maybe if you haven't been with us, if maybe this is one of your first times with us, maybe you're in town from Saskatchewan, uh, or maybe you're just hanging out uh, with us, maybe you're brand new to Christianity or whatever, whatever you are or however God has brought you in, I just want to give you sort of the Coles notes of a couple of things uh, that we have seen because they're going to come up actually in today's sermon. So I'm not just telling you this for no purpose, uh, but very intentionally. There was, there's been a lot that we've covered in the last 12 chapters, and I'm like, how do I sum this up? How do I close note this? So like, what do you need to know for today? So that's what I'm doing. So uh, what we have seen as we've been studying for these last couple of months is we've remembered actually how Israel came to be in the land of Egypt. Um, Leticia, are you helping him? Thank you. Your best friend, when your best friend's wife helps you, when your wife's sick is the best. Thank you. Um, so catch you up. So Cole's notes. So we, we've been in the book of Exodus last couple of months. Uh, we, we saw at the end of the book of Genesis how Israel ended up in Egypt. And uh, we've continued that storyline as we've been walking through the book of, of Exodus. So the book of Genesis, uh, Genesis ends and they are in Egypt. The book of Exodus opens with the word and connecting it immediately to the book of Genesis and then keeps going, telling you the story of what happens next to Israel. And as we open up to that very first chapter uh, of the book of Exodus, what we see is how they continued in this land of sojourning in a land that is not that theirs. They continued to multiply and to grow in great strength, which might sound like a really good thing as we're walking into the book of Exodus, but we quickly come to see that it is not a good thing because the king of Egypt sees them growing and multiplying, having this strength, having this greatness of numbers. And he starts looking at them saying, if I have another nation that comes in here to try to destroy me, they might just partner with them and kill us. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to start oppressing them. So that's what he did. It's what tyrants do. So he started oppressing these people and he forced them into forced labor. So they built two store cities, Pithys and Ramses. And as they built these things, they continued to grow stronger and keep multiplying. It didn't stop them from growing even stronger and multiplying even more, which only escalated the fear of the king of Egypt, right? The king of Egypt then decided he was going to escalate things. Again, that's what tyrants do. And he decided to enslave them, ultimately leading to this diabolical plan where he wanted to secretly kill any of the new baby boys that were born into these Israelite families. But those faithful women, Shifra and Pua, those Egyptian midwives, did not do it. Praise God. So after a while, he got even angrier and issued another decree commanding all of Egypt to help him in this plan to ensure that no new baby boy was born into Egypt. And so all these Israelite baby boys, after they were born, got ripped from their mother's hands and cast into the Nile River. And all of Egypt participated with the king in this diabolical plan, murdering 
unknown numbers of Israelite boys. And yet, as we've talked about at length in studying this book, even these immense hardships, even this incredible evil is not able to thwart the plans and purposes of God. We've consistently come back to Genesis chapter 15, verses 13 to 15, where God told Abraham that his descendants, the Israelites, would go into a foreign land and be enslaved. But then God would come and bring judgment on that nation and rescue them and redeem them to bring them into this land of promise that he was going to give them. So in the darkness of Egypt's treatment of Israel, we are just reminded over and over and over again that God is working behind the scenes and preparing to come and rescue and liberate his people at the time that he has ordained from before the foundations of the world, all while bringing great judgment on the Egyptians for the immense evil that they have done. And so we've remembered this promise and we've been watching it kind of unfold as our study uh, throughout the book of Exodus has happened. Just judgment upon judgment upon judgment that God has unleashed upon Egypt, which completely decimated their GDP, like it was just gone. And also demonstrated that the various gods that they worshipped as a nation were impotent demons, masquerading as gods, but having no power. It has been a glorious couple of chapters as we've been just seeing over and over and over again that there is only one true and living God and he is coming to rescue and redeem his people. And through all those signs, we've barely seen God even flex just a tiny bit. Just, just he like barely lifts his pinky finger. And, and we see all of these miracles, all these judgments on, upon Egypt. And through all of this, he raises up Moses and Aaron as his mouthpieces to lead his people out of slavery. And he brings down these judgments upon Egypt for how they treated his people. It's kind of like the end of that awesome movie where you're like, the bad guy finally gets it. And you're like, yeah, it's, it's, it's that moment. And so God is liberating now his people. And at this point in our story, in chapter 12 and 13, Israel is about to leave Egypt. And before they do, though, God gives his people future instructions for how they are to remember this amazing redemption that he just did. Particular ways that they are to remember how God came to them in their slavery and rescued and redeemed them. Specifically, God is the hero of this whole story. And this is significant because it is not by their might or by their strength or by their prowess that they won their freedom from Egypt. Right? You've you seen the movie Exodus, Gods and Kings? It was not like that. They were not grabbing swords and saying, how do we win the day? No, no, no. These people are passively sitting by, enslaved, doing nothing. And God shows up and says, all right, guys, I'm here to save you. And God single-handedly liberates them. It is a glorious story where God just flexes just the tiniest little bit and shows how strong and how mighty he is. So the Bible explains that all these, all these Israelites are simply bystanders watching God as he liberates them from slavery. So they didn't pick up a sword, a sword. They didn't throw a stone. They did nothing. They sat by and watched God bring judgment on Egypt, the same nation that had enslaved them and killed all of their babies. And they did so with delight, seeing how God saves his people and redeems his people. Thus, for the rest of their history as a nation, as they're about to leave this place and go into a land that God has prepared for them, as God leads them there by a pillar of fire by night and a cloud by day, which we'll get to next week, is pretty cool. God gives them very particular ways to constantly remind them that it was him and it's him alone who rescued and redeemed them. 
And so as we talked about last week, because of this last judgment, remember the very last one, the, where God killed all of the firstborn sons and the firstborn of the flocks and the, and the herds of Egypt, where God commands his people to have this memorial meal every year, every year to remember in a very tangible, earthy, physical, fill your belly kind of meal where they are reminded in this meal of Passover, how God's judgment passed over them and their sons and their livestock as they believed the word of God and covered the doorposts of their houses with that blood of that lamb. And as we'll see today in Exodus chapter 13, this special Passover meal actually began a week-long feast called the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And quite literally, the Jewish national calendar circles around, it centers around Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. It's like everything else centers around this thing specifically, this national calendar event. And everything there is reminding them of who rescued them and who brought them into the land that they are now living in on this future day. Namely, it was God. So we'll see in our text today that God gives actually a national reminder Uh, chapter 13, verses 3 to 10 in the Feast of Unleavened Bread. But he also gives personal reminders in chapter 13, 1 to 2, and 11 to 16. So there's this national reminder of how God has redeemed all of them that they're all supposed to participate in. But then there's these individual personal reminders of their own redemption. And, And God commands them with these things that are meant to remind them as they go about their everyday life as the redeemed, blood bought people of God of what they ought to do to remember what God has done for them. Commands that should make them pause and consider and worship God for how he saved them and brought them into this promised land to inhabit. So in today's section, you're going to see both of those things, national reminder and then personal reminders, all with the aim that God's people would remember God's faithfulness to his promises. So if you want to go ahead and open up Exodus chapter 13, we're going to look at these reminders. But before we do so, let's pray and ask God to help us. All right, let's do it. So, Father, I do want to ask uh, for your help today as we come into your word. God, we thank you for another opportunity to actually physically gather together with your people to open your infallible, inerrant, sufficient, and trustworthy word. God, I am thankful for what you're doing here in our church and bringing men and women with a desire to know your word and have their lives conformed to it. And I pray as we open your word that you would do your work in our hearts by your spirit to convict us of sin. God, to convince us of the truths of your words. And as we see these reminders of Israel's redemption, that you would remind us of our redemption and the wonderful ways that you have called us to remember our redemption as well. God, I pray that you'd work miracles in our hearts today. And we ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, as we're beginning today, I mentioned that we're going to see both uh, one of the main feasts, actually, that God gives his people that's supposed to shape their national calendar. And so uh, every year... We're going to talk about that first. So every year, God's people will celebrate Passover, right? And then immediately for the next seven days, they celebrate the Feast of Unleavened Bread. So in your mind, I want you to connect those two things in your brain. Did you do it? Just bring them together. Uh, If you maybe are a bit foggy on the the Feasts of Israel, right? I don't know, last time you did a big study on all the Feasts of Israel. Uh, My brain, when I came into this week, was a little bit foggy. I haven't studied the Feasts in a while. Uh, But that helped me remember. These two things, they, they kind of tie in together in God's plan to remind God's people of his redemption of them. And so every year, just as God's people would celebrate Passover, immediately, the next seven days, they celebrate the Feast of Unleavened Bread. So let's dive into chapter 13, and we're going to start in verse 3, and we're going to see what this feast is supposed to do in the lives of the Israelites and how they are to celebrate it. So, verse 
3. We're going to do 3a. It says, Then Moses said to the people, Remember this day in which you came out from Egypt, out of the house of slavery. For by a strong hand, the Lord brought you out from this place. See, and that right there is the reason why we started uh, off our, our social media post this week with, with uh, that phrase, remember your redemption. It's the whole reason why I named this uh, sermon, remember your redemption. It, 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 the first three, remember, and then at the end of our text for today, we'll see this word redemption. But this is, the whole, this is the whole goal of what we're seeing, both in the Passover account and then also in the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And then as we'll see in a moment, the consecration of their firstborn is this. But I want to pause here just to give the overarching idea of where we're headed because I think it's, it's important um, in all of verses 1 to 16 to remember what God is collectively reminding them to. It's to remember their redemption. Remember it nationally, remember it personally as you go about your lives and just the consistency of doing that together. So what specifically then does God tell Israel that they are to remember? Well, specifically from the verse, we see that they are to remember that they came out from Egypt, Right? out of the house of slavery. That's specifically what they are to remember. And then we see that word for, and the word for kind of grounds this whole argument, and it tells us how they did so. And it says, for, it was by a strong hand that the Lord brought you out from this place. And so again, as we're getting started, I just want to say, isn't this a really beautiful reminder for Israel as a nation? That it was not by their strength, it was not by their, their might, it was not by horses, it was not by the things that they did that won their salvation out of this land of slavery. Oh no, friend, it was purely the work of God that saved them. Nothing else. By God's strong hand, they were saved. But as I was thinking about this, I, I also think this, this, starting with the word remember seems strange. It seems like a strange thing. Where are they right now? They've just been liberated out of Egypt. They've just seen all these crazy miracles of God. And they haven't even gone through the waters yet on their way into the promise or towards the promised land. In that moment, God says, all right, now I want you to remember what I just did. You're like, bro, how do I forget this? Like they're literally carrying with them the gold that they just plundered from Egypt, the clothes that they are carrying from Egypt, and they're not in slavery anymore. They're all standing together, roughly two to three million of them leaving Egypt. I, I, it seems a strange thing, right? Hey, just, I want you to remember how we got, it's like, it's like if you all got in, in the car and, and you went to go to McDonald's, you got some food and you ate it, and then you turned around, dads, you looked at your family and said, now guys, remember, we just ate McDonald's. You're like, yeah, I, I, know, I know that. I, I, are you okay? Do we need to go to the hospital? You know what I mean? So, so this is not what's happening here, though. What's happening here is God's laying down for them this future thing that they need to constantly remember and set before their eyes as a people, as we'll see fleshed out over and over again. But God is telling them, even here, as they're carrying all this gold and clothing from plundering their enemies, as they're forced out in the middle of the night, Moses stops them according to God's word, and says they are to remember this day. It's kind of like, do you ever have some of those moments in life where you either sit down with your spouse, or your best friend, or your parents, or someone, and it's a very momentous thing that you're about to say, and they don't know what it is that you're going to say, right? Like, think about, like, when I propose, she didn't even see it coming, right? Or, or uh, when we told our, our grand, uh, the grandparents that we were there going to have kids, or the grandkids for the first time, they didn't see it coming, right? And you know, and you're about to tell someone something, and you're just waiting for that, that epic moment, Likewise, this is a very special moment that they need to remember. 
it's like, it's like Samantha and I, we were once traveling and we were at a coffee shop and, and I said, hey, you need to sit down. What I'm about to tell you is gonna be something you're gonna remember for the rest of your life. Are you ready? And she's like, what? <laughs> and, and we all have those moments in our life. And this is kind of what's going on here. Remember this day. Don't forget this day. This is a good day. Remember it. Remember that God is the one who liberated you from slavery. Remember, you were not strong enough to do this. Remember, it's the strong hand of the Lord that did this, that brought you out of the land of slavery and into the land that I promised you, that I promised to give to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And God is now fulfilling this promise for his people. One last note before we get back to the text, because I was admittedly, uh, as I mentioned, a bit foggy on this. So so just remember, Passover and then Feast of uh, Unleavened Bread. That's kind of where we're going. So as we're walking in, and a reason why we talked about the, the Passover last week and now the feast this week is really just because they both deserve their own Sundays. But, but, but Passover, as we remember from last week, was that feast that Israel was to give every year to remind them of how God had passed over their houses during that last great judgment of Egypt, where their doors, remember, covered by the blood. So God's wrath, his just judgment against their sin would not be borne by the loss of their firstborn son and the firstborn of the livestock that they had. And that Passover marks the calendar right after that feast of unleavened bread. Thus, when you have the Passover and then immediately go into this Feast of Unleavened Bread, think about this. This means that you have a couple of days preparing for Passover and then you have a seven-day feast. This is to take up like two weeks of their, of their calendar. I almost said 51 weeks, 52 weeks. How many weeks are in a year? 52. So uh, it took up two of their 52. Uh, I, I don't homeschool my kids. My wife does. It's fine. Uh, but, but this took up a, a big chunk of their, of their year. Everything is a center around this. All of their life was, their collective national reminders year after year where Israel rehearsed the exodus out of Egypt and what they ate and then how they dressed. So that was a bit of a context that you'd be aware of these feasts that are happening and how closely they are just in case you're foggy. Uh, but, but both of these were divinely orchestrated by God to cause Israel to pause, to stop, to remember the strong hand in, of God in saving his people from slavery, how he redeemed them, passed over them by their sins and how swiftly he did all of this. And Matt did a great job talking about that during uh, the Passover. If you remember from Exodus chapter 12, he did that confession of faith that the Israelites would believe as they prepped the lamb and covered the doorposts and roasted the lamb and waited for their salvation. And in that sermon, Matt explained how the Israelites were commanded that night as they waited, that they were also commanded to make bread. Do you remember that from that sermon? From Exodus chapter 12, you're commanded to, to make bread. And what were you supposed to not put in your bread? Leaven. Why? It symbolized What? unbelief, right? Because God told them, uh, right back then, right? They didn't have, as Matt said, so, so wonderfully, uh, they didn't have quick, quick uh, rising yeast. And so if you, you put yeast in something, it had to wait all night and then the next day, and then you could kind of bake it, right? And so what God said is don't put yeast in your bread because you're leaving this very night. And so if you put yeast in your bread, it meant that you did not believe that the Lord was going to save you swiftly, and so Matt said that, that's how, as we trace even that idea and concept of, of yeast throughout scripture, uh, it goes back and forth. But, but a lot of it talks about how there is certain things like sin, like for example, in 1 Corinthians. But they were commanded to not put yeast in their bread. And if they did so, it was this sign of unbelief. So anyone who put bread, leaven in their bread that night assumed that God wasn't gonna save them quickly. So leaven in their bread was this disbelief in the promises and power of God as he redeemed his people. So that's why they didn't have any leaven. And so that's why for the rest of their history as a people, God here commands them not to put any leaven in their bread for this week-long feast. That way, they physically, tangibly, in their mouths, remember how God saved his people from slavery. Was it slowly? Nope. 
just fast in the middle of the night, like a thief in the night. And that's, that's why they, they are to constantly remember this, to actively remember their trust in his deliverance. So that's some backstory so you'll understand a little bit better what's going on. So picking up back in verse three, um, we see again at this time that uh, no leavened bread shall be eaten from this. So just at Passover, uh, by what Israel eats, they are to remember God's salvation from them. It's this physical, touchable, tangible, edible reminder of who God is and how he saves. So they would remember as they eat that bread of how God saved them, how Yahweh is mighty to save and the gods of the nations are worthless in comparison. Who is like him? No one, no one, no one. So let's pick it back up, verse four. So verse four and five. It says, today in the month of Abib, which is a fun, that's a fun word. Abib, you are going out. And when the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, which he swore to your fathers to give to you, a land flowing with milk and honey, you shall keep this service in this month. Thus, from here, we see when Israel is supposed to be celebrating this. Are they supposed to start celebrating the Feast of Unleavened Bread immediately? No. When are they supposed to do it? When they get into the land. Which is interesting, isn't it? God is saying, just as I brought you out, I will be faithful to bring you in. And when you do, this is when you're supposed to celebrate this. And now we also see why they're told to remember it, because it'll be a while uh, before they get there. Uh, and God knows that. But, uh, but uh, that is as sure as he has just redeemed them, he will lead them into the land. And when they get there, he's giving them orders for this special feast as he brings them in. The same God that rescued and redeemed them from Egypt would go before them, and he would give them this land. It's a guarantee, a sure thing. So just as Egypt could not stand, so none of these nations could stand. Also, as a hint, when you're reading through the Bible out loud with other people, just say names confidently, and people will assume that's how you say it. If you ever, <clears throat> you're ever reading through in the Bible, study, you're like, I don't know how to say this name. Just say it. Uh, so uh, then starting in verse 6, we see how long this feast is to last. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread, and on the seventh day there shall be a feast to the Lord. Now, from this, we aren't sure precisely if you can only eat unleavened bread for seven days. That would be a long seven days. Can you imagine just unleavened bread every day for seven days? Or if you just have to make sure you just don't have, like you can still have meat and fish or veggies or fruit. Uh, but but we're, not, we're not really told uh, from this text. Uh, but we know from the immediate context, the strikingly clear thing is that if you have bread during this week, it has to be unleavened. Again, because leaven is a sign of unbelief and it's God's strong hand that saved them. So verse seven, we get this command then twice. Look, it says unleavened bread shall be eaten. Shall, uh, unleavened bread shall be eaten for seven days. So no leavened bread shall be seen with you, and no leavened bread shall be with you in all your territory. So there's no way around it. And the verses kind of build on one another, don't they? None shall be with you. Don't even carry it around. And none shall be with you in all of your territory. It has to go far away. You have to get rid of all the leaven. Not even a trace of it can remain. And people used to actually go through their houses with little feathers just to make sure they got every little corner of, you know, that little corner in your drawer when you open, there's always food there. That corner, they want to make sure that corner gets cleaned out as well. There's not even a trace of leaven anywhere around them. And just like we saw happen a few weeks ago and throughout the Pentateuch, these first five books of the Bible, there are children that appear from time to time and just ask random questions. 
Those of you who have small kids understand why, because uh, they always do that. Uh, and, and so there are these children that appear. They just ask questions. Uh, and, and, or maybe parents are commanded to teach their kids certain things of the Lord. And that's what we see happen then right here in the text. But notice this time, the child is not asking a question of the parent. Rather, the parent is to, by their own initiative, go to the child and explain why this is happening. Why are they celebrating this Feast of Unleavened Bread and eating no leaven for a week? So, verse 8. You shall tell your son on that day. It is because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt. Thus, this feast at its core, right, has a teaching element as well. It's not just for you to remember, but, but it's, it's also, it is for you to remember, but it's also as you're teaching the next generation of the things of the Lord. This is kind of an object lesson for them to use as a means of teaching the next generation of how God's just judgment passed over them and uh, by the blood of the lamb and how they were commanded to put no yeast in their bread because God was going to save them swiftly. So you'd look at little David or little Solomon, or little Jesus and say, hey, this is why we eat unleavened bread. We are to remember the strong hand of the Lord, his judgment upon Egypt and his salvation for us. God came to us in our slavery and he redeemed us, buddy. And he brought us out of the land of slavery and into the land of promise. So trust in him. Just as he was faithful to our ancestors, he will be true to you. He is faithful. So with every bite of that unleavened bread, we rehearse the goodness of God and his faithfulness. We remember that he alone is Lord and we are his chosen people. And thus Israel is to have this meal every year, right? On the coattails of Passover, as verse nine says, should be to you as a sign on your hand and it's to be a memorial between your eyes that the law of the Lord may be in your mouth. Now, if you're familiar with the Bible, there is this often quoted part of Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy chapter six, known as the Shema. And in the Shema, we read, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. And these words I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. And you shall talk about them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand. and They should be like frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your houses and on your gates. So when we, when we read this in Exodus chapter 13, aren't we immediately reminded of Deuteronomy chapter six. It's shockingly similar. And thus we come to understand and examine these two texts of the the law of God, the commandments of God, including this feast of unleavened bread has been graciously given by God as a way of collectively and tangibly reminding themselves of God's character, nature, strength, promise, and covenants. See, all of their lives as God's people are now to be governed by his word. His word is to be a lamp to their feet and a light to their path. His word His commands are to be a sign on their hand. Not meaning that they literally had to tie a little sign around their hand, but but meaning that all of the works of their hands, all the strength that God gives them, all that they do physically ought to be in conformity to God's word, God's law. And it's to be as frontlets between their eyes or a memorial before their eyes, governing all of their thoughts and all of their minds. All to the aim that that the law of God would be where? In their mouths, in their their mouths, that as they remind one another of God's words, as they diligently teach their kids, as they sit in their houses and walk in the way and lie down and rise up. So a special note here for parents by way of application right in the middle of our sermon. It is our God-given responsibility as parents to teach our children the law of the Lord. 
Specifically, brothers, it's your job. It's your job, brother. And God needs you to do this. God needs you to, he doesn't need, let me, let me back that up. God doesn't need you to do this. God commands you to do this. This is not something you get a choice on, right? God commands you, brother, your role in your home is to lead your family that they might hear of the Lord from your lips, that you might teach them the things of the Lord. This is your job. This is what God has distinctly ordained you for. Now, sisters, he also expects this from you. But brothers, your families need you to man up and to be the man that God has called you to be and to lead your family to know, love, trust, and believe the Lord. This is what he needs. Dang it, I did it again. He doesn't need you to do it. He commands you to do it. Uh, He commands you to do it. And in in this, and in this as dads specifically, dad, it's your role to nurture the little hearts that God has ordained to give into your family, to teach them the gospel, to teach them God's word. My children, my children have the most wonderful wife in the world. I know, ladies, you might think that you might be the most wonderful wife, the most wonderful mother. My wife, uh, most wonderful. Of all, of all the women, she's the most lovely to be praised. Uh, and, but my children, my children most desperately need me as their dad to teach them God's word and his covenants and his promises. They need me. They need me to tell them the gospel, to hear it from my own lips and from Samantha's lips as we parent them. It's not someone else's responsibility. It's mine. And that looks differently with kids of, of different ages. Right, and all the parents that have had multiple kids say, yes, it does. Right, my 16-month-old daughter at this moment, she needs to learn that I love her as I play with her and I snuggle with her. But she also, from me as her dad, needs to learn authority as she begins to wield her little will and I have to stop her from biting others or hitting her brother or her mom. So I'm trying to help her begin to understand authority because if she doesn't understand my authority as her dad, she will not understand the Lord's authority. And so make sure that that's there. And my middle son, as you saw a moment ago, is in the place of beginning to learn about the Bible and putting pieces of the storyline together, trying to understand how things fit. My oldest son, he's at a different place. So depending on where your children are at in their ages, they're at different places. But my job as a dad is to ensure that they are hearing the gospel. They are learning the things of the Lord and that I am teaching them through silly songs that I sing to help them remember scripture and big truths about God that I would not listen to on my own, but I listen to because I know it's helpful for little hearts to learn big truths. And the dad said, amen. Songs, books, other various means. Friends, and this is what God's people have always done with our children. We have shown them the things that the Lord has given us and we have called our children and said, hey, look what I'm doing here. This is what I'm doing. So when we have a moment of repentance, I'll often sit down and say, hey, Bubba, what we're gonna do right now is we're gonna repent. We're gonna ask God for forgiveness. This is how we do that. Because whose job is it to teach him how to repent? Mine. And I love to do it. And so following the pattern of the saints of old, my family, in a very practical way, we gather each night to read the Bible and sing together and to pray, remembering and rehearsing the gospel. And I'm praying it just reaches deep down into their souls and that God would save them. 
And if that's newer for you and you're like, man, I don't know how to lead my family, you're in good company, brothers. We have uh, lots of men who would love to show you how to do this. We actually also have a, a book uh, that, man, I wish he was here. It's not this week, but it's called Family Worship. Um, and it is a great resource for really beginning to learn to, how to lead your families, men. So I would greatly encourage you to pick that up. And I mentioned all this kind of on a little rabbit trail because the text explains that these Israelites are to tell their sons on this day, to open their mouths and to proclaim how God has rescued and redeemed his people. And because all of life is to be governed by the law of the Lord, it ought to be as a sign on our foreheads, governing our thoughts, a sign on our hands, governing our actions, that everything that we do might be pleasing to the Lord. And then the text continues, verse 9b. It says, for with the strong hand, the Lord has brought you up out of Egypt. That's the entire argument that we see here by Moses here is that God's strong hand has brought them out of Egypt. I know, you're like, Aaron, I've, you said that nine times. I'm like, I know, it's because the text says it a lot and it wants you to remember it a lot because we are quick to forgetting. Thus, all that they should do is what God has commanded them to do in celebrating this feast and open their mouths and rehearsing the strength of God and how God has liberated them. Notice as well, this phrase is a phrase we have seen before. We saw it in verse three. Strong hand, God brought you out of this place. That's what that entire feast is to remind you of. There's none like God. And then verse 10, you shall therefore keep this statute at its appointed time from year to year. Thus, as we said, this feast is to mark the national calendar of Israel. They're to gather, eat the meal, remember the lamb that was slain in their place and how God's wrath had passed over them. And then they were to celebrate the feast of unleavened bread, remembering how swiftly God had saved them and how strong he is so that they would never forget. They are to remember their redemption. But as I already mentioned, the Israelites are not simply to remember their redemption once a year and then go on the rest of the year not remembering their redemption, right? Like, oh, I did that for those two weeks, remember? The other 50 weeks, I just, I don't, I, I don't know. I don't remember. That, 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 is, <clears throat> that is not the goal, right? If, if all of your life is to be governed by God's word, then it's not just like, oh, good, two weeks, and then I'm good, right? Nope. Not so much. And so God gives them this really beautiful uh, uh, thing to do uh, as personal citizens then of the kingdom of God, that they are to walk out kind of in their everyday lives. And one of those is through consecrating or setting apart the firstborn livestock from their herds and offering it to the Lord and also by redeeming their firstborn sons. So this would be a very tangible way, right? And the structure of chapter 13 is really interesting. If you look back at chapter 12, you see the institution of the Passover from verses 43 to kind of 51-ish is kind of that, that section. So, so, so then the first two verses of chapter 13 continue that train of thought that we have been on in the last few chapters. Thus, as God has redeemed these firstborn sons and these firstborn livestock, so God then says to Israel that these sons and this livestock now belong to me. I saved them. They are mine. They do not belong to you any longer. And and there's a really special way that Israel is called to remember this personally as they enter into the land of promise. And then the section, as you notice as well in our our study, the section pauses after verse two and talks about the second part of the national calendar, but then goes back into this consecration to make sure that we know what we are supposed to do in consecrating our firstborn sons and our livestock. And we see this clearly. Look, Look at me, chapter 13, verses one to two. It says... Uh, n- no, yes, I'm going to look at my Bible. Uh, chapter 13, verses one and two, it says, the Lord said to Moses, consecrate to me all the firstborn, whatever is the first to open the womb among the people of Israel, both of man and of beast is mine. Thanks, buddy. So <clears throat> from this, right after Passover, where they remember how God passed over their sons, God says, these sons and livestock that I passed over, these are mine. They're set apart. They belong to me. 
And this is, this is not just to be a passing reminder then for that first generation, but rather every generation that follows, this is to be a reminder of their redemption, to be a reminder of what God has done. Look with me at verse 11. It says, when the Lord brings you into the land of Canaan, as he swore, pause. Where have you seen that vocabulary? Verse five. Look at verse five. Note the similarities there. We have the Canaanites mentioned and also how the Lord swore to your fathers to give the land. I mean, the similarities in all of these two sections abound as you can tell from walking through them. We're gonna keep going. So when the Lord brings you into the land of Canaan, as he swore to you and to your fathers and gives it to you, you shall set apart to the Lord all that first opens the womb. All the firstborn of your animals that are males shall be the Lord's. And here, the Israelites are commanded to sacrifice these animals, literally to give them back to the Lord as a sacrifice. They belong to God. And this would be a consistent reminder all the way throughout Israel's history of how God has passed over the sins of his people by saving and sparing this very first generation of animals. Thus, it's a perpetual and a consistent reminder of God's grace and his provision with every firstborn male livestock. And as we'll see throughout the history of Israel, they will do this when they get into the land of promise. They will bring these sacrifices first to the tabernacle, then to the temple. So the firstborn animal belongs to the Lord. And then verse 13, every firstborn of a donkey you shall redeem. So, so that this in the place of that. So the redeem means, so every firstborn of the donkey you shall redeem with a lamb. So the lamb will take its place. Or if you will not redeem it, you'll break its neck. Now that kind of seems weird. Why is a donkey called out here? Not other animals. Like, where's the camel? Right? Like, why, why, just the, why is the donkey labeled out here? Well, it's because donkeys were unclean and they are used a lot by Israel. You couldn't sacrifice a donkey because it's unclean. So God told you not to. And so you had to, if it was the firstborn donkey, you had to redeem it by sacrificing a lamb in its place. And all of that is to be a reminder of the Passover, isn't it? So, so there is meant to be in the rhythm of their lives a fresh reminder with every firstborn that all things belong to the Lord. Your livestock, and as we'll see in a moment, your sons. Notice as well, though, if you're unwilling to redeem this donkey, you had to kill the donkey. You couldn't keep it if it was not redeemed. For to do so would be to walk in faithlessness, to walk contradictory to the commands that were given to remind you of how he redeemed you from the land of slavery. And a few weeks ago, I was uh, hanging out with a friend of mine, uh, Matt Plett, who's planting that church in Ildeshane, uh, Trinity Church. Uh, he owns a dairy farm and uh, we were having coffee at his house and he was sharing with me a little bit about his farm and how it operates and, and he has 65 dairy cows. That's, a, that's more cows I think than I've ever seen in my entire life. Uh, that's so many. That's a big job. He, he explained how in order to prepare then for, for the next generation of cows, what they have to do is artificially inseminate these cows so that they then have calves born every week. Some of them they keep, some of them they sell. And the ones they keep, uh, they then grow, like raise them. And then that calf becomes a cow that produces milk as they artificially inseminate that one. And the, the, the process just keeps going. And I was thinking about Matt as I was getting ready for this sermon. And I was thinking about it, that, that, that Israel had to keep track of every single animal. And if they had or had not had a baby yet. Can you imagine how crazy that would be? Like, what do you do? Like, they didn't have spray paint to just mark a cow to know. Like, oh, this one hasn't yet. Oh, now it has, right? Goes from a mark to a check mark. Like, like they had to be careful to know all of their livestock. 
if they have or have not had a firstborn yet. And if when they had a firstborn, they then have to go and to sacrifice it to the Lord. That seems crazy, doesn't it? That in an agrarian society, this is something that you would be then constantly doing. Every week, every other week, you would be giving a sacrifice to remember this from the Lord. It would always be on your mind. It would always govern what you did with your hands, right? This would be a consistent thing for you. It would not be easily forgotten. So constantly, they were walking by faith and reminding themselves by doing what God had commanded them to do that uh, God had saved them and redeemed them. Not only that, but, but it would also have been an incredible cost, wouldn't it? I mean, think about the costs involved. Every single time you have a firstborn animal, you have to kill it. Take it to the Lord and sacrifice it. The enormous cost here and the labor here would be a lot. So God's law would have to be on your mind, governing your thoughts and governing your hands, lest you stop remembering the Lord and see these animals as price tags instead of as good gifts that have been given to you by God as a means of remembering your redemption. Thus, in their daily lives, the Israelites had to make financial sacrifices as a means to remember their redemption. It was costly. And to carry this into a moment of application as well, I wonder if you, brother and sister, have ever thought about the gifts that you give to our church like that. That they actually are a means of remembering your redemption. That God has redeemed you. I think we're missing a really wonderful thing to remember our redemption, even in something as giving unto the Lord financially. That, that I think God is actually really intricately woved, woven into the lives of us as Christians so that we also have to constantly remember these things, remembering our redemption. So I started thinking about that, and I have some questions that I ask myself. And is it okay if I ask you to? The questions I asked myself this week? All right, great, here we go. Uh, so, so I ask myself, does, does that then, in thinking about that, does that mark my giving to our church? This heart that remembers redemption and joyfully gives to the Lord? Is that what I think through? Or do I just simply give out of duty or obligation? So I would encourage you, like I encouraged myself this week, that the next time that you do give, stop for a moment before you do and use that as an opportunity to remember your redemption. Remember how the Lord saved you, how he brought you from slavery to sin and Satan and death and adopted you into his family and provided for you. Because I think we're missing out on a wonderful way to remember our redemption as God's people, that everything that we do should be governed by God's word. All these things, these reminders of redemption can be woven throughout our lives as Christians. Just small moments to remember our own redemption in practical ways. But back to the Israelites. So they would remember their redemption personally, and any time they had a firstborn male, they would sacrifice that male as an animal, as a reminder of, what God, of how God passed over Israel and saved them from facing the consequences of their sin with a strong and mighty hand. But we also see that this wasn't just personal property. No, the next verse actually lets us know that as every couple got married and then got pregnant and had their firstborn son, they were commanded to remember their history as a nation as well. They were to remember how God saved their parents 
or their grandparents or their great-grandparents from the loss of those firstborn sons by passing over them. And so all of Israel, from the day they entered into the land into forever, were to consecrate, to set apart their firstborn sons as a reminder of God's strong hand and bringing them out of the land and passing over them and letting them remain in that glorious night in Egypt where God rescued and redeemed his people. And I don't know about the other dads out there, but anytime I walk through this, this in their kids' Bibles or as they're reading through other things or talking about it, but... But I, I remember every time that we do so, as my kids have gotten older, it's kind of hit me in a different way. I, I remember looking at Owen, my firstborn son, on those early days of fatherhood. I, I remember looking at his face. I remember thinking of God's goodness and his strength and his kindness. I remember changing his diaper and being reminded that God, my good father, comes to me in my dirtiness and he cleans me up and makes me better. What a powerful reminder of the gospel at work, dads, as you're changing those diapers. It's a beautiful thing. It also helps with the smell, if you just remember that. Or you think of the stench of death. Uh, That could also help. Then as he got older, I would read to him about God saving Israel out of Egypt, and I would be sure to look at him. I'd say, hey, buddy, look at me. I would say, this passage means that you would have been lost that night. You would have died. Our family would not have you in it right now. Because God's judgment would have come upon you and you would have died if this was our family and we didn't cover the doorposts of our house with this blood. So it hit me different being a dad than it ever had before. I had the sorrow of what would it be like to lose a son that night? To experience the judgment of God in such a way. And that's the point. In the same way then, Israel is to remember with each firstborn son, they are to remind themselves of God's story of redemption of them. And that was the goal of these commands given by God to the Israelites in consecrating their firstborn sons. Look at me, verse 13b. It says, every firstborn of man among your sons you shall redeem. And when in time your son asks you, here it is, dad, why all this redeeming? Why do we have to keep going and sacrificing all these firstborn animals? Why, Why do we have to do all these things? What is going on, dad? Dad, you shall say to him, son, by a strong hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt from the house of slavery. Again, note, strong hand of the Lord. It's mighty to save his people from the house of slavery and bring them into the land of promise. These things ought to always be on their lips. For when Pharaoh stubbornly refused to let us go, the Lord killed all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both the firstborn of man, the firstborn of animals. Therefore, I sacrifice to the Lord all the males that first opened the womb. But of all the firstborn of my sons, I redeem. And this act of remembering personally and doing what God commanded them to do, that as they do that, Israel is actively remembering their salvation, but also teaching that next generation what it means to follow the Lord, to remember the strength of the Lord, that there is no God like him, able to save his people with a strong hand. So with every sacrifice, every redemption, they preach the upcoming generation and to their own hearts, lest they forget how merciful God has been to them. Note with me as well that verses 13 and 15, they use this word redeem four times. Four times. In fact, in the book of Exodus, we see this word only used a handful of times. And it's really interesting to see how it's used in the book of Exodus. But I'm gonna let you do that study on your own. It's worth digging into. It's a deep and rich mind that's good to study, but we don't have time to do that right now. But I briefly mentioned that because the word redeem means that one takes the place of another. That's what the redeemed, the word redeemed means. So just as the lamb on that night of Passover died instead of the firstborn animals and sons, So this man is called to redeem the firstborn of his animals and of his sons. 
So he's rehearsing in a tangible, earthly way what God has done for him and his family in an act of worship. We might assume just from looking at this text that maybe a lamb was to be killed in the place of this firstborn son. Like we aren't really told expressly. So we might have a little bit of confusion there. But we actually know from looking at Numbers chapter 18, verses 15 to 19, that these sons are not to be redeemed by a lamb, but rather there was a price that was set to redeem them. Specifically, Numbers chapter uh, 18, verse 16 says, And their redemption price, at a month old you shall redeem them. You shall fix it five shekels in silver, according to the shekel of the sanctuary, which is 20 geras. Thus there is this price that is set by God, and any firstborn son must be redeemed. Five shekels in the place of this son. Again, all this is to remind them of God's strong hand and their redemption out of the land of Egypt. And then this section ends just as the last one did. Look, look at verse 9, and then look at verse 16. They are almost identical. So, so verse 16 says, It shall be as a mark on your hand or frontlets between your eyes, for by a strong hand the Lord brought us up out of Egypt. And there it is again. And, and I don't know if you've noticed or not, this phrase, the strong hand of the Lord, is mentioned four times in these 16 verses. Everything centers around this one main idea. Lest Israel forget that it was not by their own might that they were saved. No, it was by the Lord's strong hand. He redeemed them as his people. Thus, they are to remember their redemption in all that they do, nationally and personally. So that's how you could really summarize uh, verse, these 16 verses is, is by saying something like this. For by a strong hand, she couldn't start off a summary without saying by a strong hand, it's in there so much. By a strong hand, the Lord brought his people out of Egypt, the land of slavery, and commands them to remember their redemption, both nationally with the Feast of the Unleavened Bread and Passover, but personally as well with their own families and flocks, reminding themselves and teaching future generations of God's great salvation of his people. Or in short, remember your redemption. And this was to be a statute forever, lest they ever forget. And you might be thinking, <laughs> at this point, you're like, man, we're like 45 minutes in, bro. Um, thanks for the history lesson. I'm not Jewish. Why in the world should I study and examine this text? You're like, I'm not going to be celebrating these festivals. I am not Israel, bro. I'm not sacrificing an animal. Uh, like, why is this important for me? I'm glad you asked that. Uh, I'm glad you asked that. Why is this in the Bible? Why should you read this at all? But let's just have a sermon on it, right? That, that might cross your mind as well as you open up the Bible tomorrow. You grab your cup of coffee. You sit down with your Bible and you open it up. You're in the Old Testament. And you're like, great, I read that chapter. I have no idea how that applies to my life. All right, keep going, uh, right? So, so why in the world are we reading this? What profit is this to our soul? How is this feast and the consecration of firstborn sons and animals profitable at all for us as Christians living in Manitoba? Why in the world will we study and examine this text? And to tip my hand a little bit, I believe it's because like Israel, you and I as Christians are prone to forgetting the mighty works of God in our lives just as they were. Just as they were. Think about it for a moment. How often, Christian, do you pause and think about God's redemption of you? How, how often do you stop everything else, shut everything off? How often do you let your mind intentionally think about the gospel of your salvation? And how often are you reminded of how God saved you? you 
and passed over your sins through the incarnation of God the Son, Jesus, as he laid humanity alongside of divinity and stepped into time to reveal the Father perfectly and to live a perfect life of holiness and to stand condemned in your place, suffering the wrath of God that you deserved to pay so that we who don't deserve it and couldn't earn it might be passed over and redeemed. How often do you stop, put down your phone, turn off the podcasts, turn off your computer, pause and reflect on God's redemption of you? When was the last time that you thought about the wrath of God, the just judgment of God against your sin? When was the last time that you sat and thought that before God saved you, before God saved you, do you remember there was a time when the just judgment of God was coming after you? You deserve nothing from him but wrath and judgment. You did whatever your depraved mind and heart wanted to do. If the scriptures are true, and we believe they are, then you once, dear Christian, were dead in your sins. You're not born a Christian. No, quite the opposite. The Bible says that you were born worshiping the prince of the power of the air. The spirit does not work in the sons of disobedience. I mean, you had a spirit at work in you. It was not God the spirit. It was a spirit of disobedience leading you to do whatever your mind and your heart and your body wanted you to do. Friends, the Bible is not a pretty picture thinking about what we deserve before God apart from Christ. So we were dead in our sins, a slave to unrighteousness, unable to choose God or love Jesus. More than that, we had Stockholm Syndrome. We were in love with our sin. We were in love with our darkness. We ran from the light of Christ and we did not want it. None of us would choose him because it meant we'd have to come before him and be exposed as wicked and as terrible and as sinful as we are. And who likes the light of revelation on the darkest parts of our heart? Uh, nobody. Not a soul. And we had the spirit at work in us causing us to live this life of disobedience, carrying out the passions of the flesh and the desires of the body and of the mind. And we were by nature children of wrath. All that we deserved before God was to face his unending judgment, wave after wave of it for all of eternity future. Like the Egyptians, we deserved, I deserved, you deserved before Christ to have the wrath of God, the judgment of God come upon you for your many sins. And I deserved, you deserved, to spend an eternity suffering the righteous wrath of a holy God where after a billion years we'd be no closer to the end than when we first began. It was bleak. It's like this tsunami of God's judgment was rushing towards us and we couldn't see it. We were blinded by Satan, as 2 Corinthians 4, 4 explains. We were unable to see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who's the very image of God made flesh And the tsunami of God's judgment was coming towards you. It's about to engulf you when God showed up on the scene. And without your assistance at all, he saved you. That is good news. You were unable to escape it. Without your assistance at all, he saved you. And he took upon himself the tsunami of judgment that you deserved to pay. And you, dear brother and sister, 
did not even get a light mist on you from that tsunami. Not even a light mist of it. He took all of God's righteous wrath against your sin. This is a beautiful thing. We, we read in God's word that he saved us just like he did Israel by his strong hand. He brought us out of the land of slavery to Satan, sin, and death and into his glorious kingdom and family. And he gave you his spirit. He gave you eyes to see and a heart that feels and a mind to comprehend the glorious gospel of our salvation. And you who are dead and only deserve judgment, he made you alive. As we've talked about over and over again in this series, we read the book of Exodus, we should rightly identify ourselves firstly, not as the people of God who are in slavery, waiting redemption, but rather firstly, we should see ourselves as those Egyptians, those who are guilty and deserve God's judgment to come, on, come upon them. They don't deserve to be passed over. They don't deserve God's grace. And yet, as we talked about, out of Egypt, there came a mixed multitude, Egyptians with the Israelites. There were some who believed the word of the Lord and they were saved from facing God's judgment, just like Israel was by faith in the word of God and by covering their doors with the blood of the lamb. And we are like Egypt. We are like them, enemies of God, deserving judgment, who can even today have our sins forgiven, passed over. We can be redeemed by the blood of the true and better Lamb of God, God the Son, Jesus, who stood condemned in our place, suffering the shame and the death that we deserve to die. And so if you're here and you're kicking the tires on Christianity and you're wondering if there is a way that you can be forgiven by God for your many sins, the answer is yes. Yes, there is. And it's through faith in Jesus alone. That he, God in the flesh, came to make a way for you to be saved from facing the judgment that you deserve. And he took the cup of God's judgment against you and he drank it to the dregs. Similarly to how we will drink this cup to the dregs in a moment. He drank all of God's wrath for you. Drank it to the dregs. So that if you would come today and repent and believe upon Jesus, you too can be forgiven, made new, and welcomed into the family of God. You could be redeemed. See, Christian brother and sister, that is your story, isn't it? I mean, you're guilty. You're guilty, but, but you were able to go free because you've been redeemed, him in the place of you. So now you're set free. And he didn't redeem you by, by and God didn't redeem you by giving five shekels. That was much more costly than that. As God the Son stood condemned in our place, that we might be pardoned and redeemed by his strong and mighty hand. So we, like Israel, are called to also remember our redemption, to remember the wrath against our sin and the just judgment of God that we deserved. Remember how he saved us through Jesus and gave us God the Spirit to indwell us and empower us for good works that he has predestined for us to walk in. Remember the kindness of God towards you. Remember his strong hand. Or as Andrew Peterson says, brother and sister, is it good that we remind ourselves of this? It is. It is. So just as Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread and this redemption of these animals and sons was meant to remind God's people of their salvation. So every time that we rehearse the gospel, this good news of our salvation, we ought to rightly recognize that we are also saved, not by our own strength or our own ability, but rather we are saved, dear Christian, by the strong hand of our God. Like Israel, we were unable to save ourselves. We needed God to come and do for us what we could not do. And like Israel, we have been redeemed and rescued by our Passover lamb, 1 Corinthians 5, 7. Jesus. So in wrapping up, I have 
two main ways that we as Christians can read this text and uh, things that we should remember. So what should we, we as Christians remember? First is this. First, remember that God has saved us from sin's tyranny. And that the God who saved us has promised that he will lead us all the way to the home that he is preparing for us. There is no enemy that can thwart God's eternal plan. There's no enemy that can steal you from the Father's hand, brother and sister. No, he who saved you and brought you out of the land of Satan, sin, and death, out of the land of your slavery, has birthed you into his family, and he's promised that he will lead you all the way home. So don't drop a single anchor. We're almost home. Secondly, as God gave Israel the means of grace to remember their redemption, their feast, this feast and consecration, we also ought to remember the means of grace that he's given us so that we can, along life's narrow way, remember our redemption in practical ways. So how do we do that? Well, firstly, we can rehearse the gospel to ourselves. Personally, both in our own Bible reading and our prayers, especially as we read the Bible, be on the lookout for ways we can pause and reflect on our own sin and remember the gospel. In our prayers, in our prayers, let us be quick every day to thank God for our salvation. When was the last time in your prayers you thanked God for your salvation? This is a means by which God has given us every day that we can rehearse the gospel, even in our prayers. Thank God for saving you. It was a miracle. If your heart is anything like mine, it was a miracle. It's a miracle that you're saved. So do that in your prayers. Rehearse how he did that as well, specifically through our true and better Passover lamb who was slain. Secondly, teach the gospel to your kids and others. I know some of you don't have kids, and I want you to help my kids learn to trust and believe upon Christ as well. Uh, so, So this is for others. Also think about the ways maybe that you are uh, spiritually discipling people. And in this, find rhythms to remind one another and pray one another often. A way that I do that personally with friends and people I, I pray with. In fact, if I prayed with you or for you, we've been together. One thing that I always pray for every single time is what? I thank God for your salvation. Every single time in my prayers, we, we, you and I ever pray together. I always thank God for your salvation, which sometimes I think people are a little offended at. They're like, What's, what's wrong with me, man? Don't you think you need God's grace too? Right? Or like, man, he must think I'm a big sinner. Uh, but this is the way I'm, I'm reminding you of the gospel as well. And I'm reminding myself of the gospel as well. And this is the way that we can do this even in our prayers. Thank God for saving one another. Thank him for his kindness. In doing so, we are filling our mouths with the law of the Lord as we train ourselves to meditate and think about the gospel and as we remember our own redemption. Thirdly, our church gatherings are a corporate reminder of us doing this. This is why we physically gather together under God's word and strive to remind one another of the gospel and our preaching and singing and praying and repenting. We are a means of God's grace to one another. And as you can tell, if you've been around our church for very long, every sermon is like the same drum and we just keep hitting it over and over and over and over and over and over and over again. The gospel is what you most desperately need because we are quick to forgetting. and We need to remember the hope of our salvation. Fourthly, as God gave Israel the Feast of Unleavened Bread to remember their redemption, we are also given a meal, aren't we? We are given a meal to remember our redemption. Communion or the Lord's Supper or the Eucharist or the table, depending on what background you come from. But it's here where we remember that the wrath of God against us was paid in full so that God could pass over our sins because we were redeemed by the blood of another. One took the place of another. 
He took our place and he won our salvation by his strong and mighty hand. And now we are healed as God's people under God's king and God's laws. And we are being led safely by his spirit to our eternal home. Thus we, like Israel, are people who are commanded to remember our redemption through a tangible, tasty, uh, physical, special meal. Tasty, maybe not so much with these things, but, but that's the goal. A meal, a meal with bread and wine. Or for the fundamental Baptists or Pentecostals, uh, bread and Welch's grape juice. Uh, and, and I don't know if you've ever thought about this before, about this bread at communion, but historically, this bread is always unleavened. You ever notice that when you're at church? Like, why is this stuff unleavened? It'd be much better if it was a nice big loaf. And this meal given to us by Jesus connects us through the annals of history to the covenants of God as his covenant people. We point our minds as we have this unleavened bread. We point it back to the salvation of Israel and how our salvation is the true and better of what God had promised all along, what, what Passover points to as the true and better lamb of God, the true and better redemption sacrifice who had his body broken, blood poured out so that we might be redeemed. Thus, the salvation of Israel is a foretaste of what happened in our own lives. We are enslaved but redeemed by the lamb. Thus, this prototype story, we are reminded of our own and we're reminded of our redemption. And so, I thought with that, uh, that we would celebrate communion together.